From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Joyce Vance. Hi, Joyce Vance. Good morning, Preet. So, just one bit of news I want to tell our audience, dedicated, loyal CAFE fans and listeners. You are one of the people who writes a note every few weeks, and they're always insightful and wise and well-written. We have a new contributor, my friend Rachel Barco of New York University Law School, who's a brilliant lawyer, was on the Sentencing Commission. She is now going to be a regular contributor to Cafe.com as well. I think you know her. I'm pretty excited about that because Rachel is very strong on criminal justice reform and criminal law-related issues. I'm really looking forward to getting to read her short essays regularly. We've had her on the podcast before. She has strong feelings about the pardon power, and um, maybe she'll be writing about that at some point. I think her first piece is going to be about this case called Rahimi, dealing with gun regulation that we've talked about before and remains to be seen what the Supreme Court does with it. Should we transition? I don't have a good segue. You always have good segues. <laughs> they're sort of dad joke segues, but they're yeah. usually pretty good. They are. All right. So we welcome Rachel to the family. So I think the thing to talk about first, Joyce, is the fact that on Monday of this week, yesterday, Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, actually took the stand in the civil fraud trial in New York and um, various people are describing it in different <laughs> different ways. I described it as bonkers. How would you describe the testimony and the back and forth between him in particular and Judge Ngoron? I mean, Donald Trump was a remarkably good witness, disciplined, answered the questions <laughs> without, de- you know, geez. I mean, it was one of those incredible displays that I think we all expected, right? I think in our hearts, we all knew that that was what Donald Trump on the witness stand in court would look like. But it was remarkable for many reasons, including Donald Trump's complete failure to have any instinct for self-preservation. Do you agree with me that Donald Trump and his team have effectively decided, and maybe understandably so, that the case is lost, Yeah. right? The actual legal case is lost. They've lost much of it the important part of it already, on summary judgment before the trial even began. The judges found Donald Trump not to be credible, found his lawyers on different occasions not to be particularly credible. And in his mind, you know, a phrase probably goes through his brain, is the fix is in. There's nothing he can really do to turn about the mind of the judge. And there's no jury in this case, as we've discussed before. And so now he's just proceeding with spectacle and with braggadocio And, you know, training his message to the public. At one point during his testimony, he says something about the trial being unfair, and he hopes the public is paying attention. Is there any legal strategy left other than maybe, and this is where I always come to you as a former appellate lawyer that you have been, the only legal strategy I can see, aside from putting on a political spectacle, is hoping for something that the judge will do that will be an error that can cause a reversal of the almost certain verdict against Trump. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely right. Donald Trump is out of control. If his lawyer has even tried to give him advice, he's not taking it. Whether or not it's a strategy to try to poke at the judge, it's not working. This is an experienced judge. He, I, I think, has handled everything that they've tried to toss at him, including baiting him about his relationship with his, his clerk. He's made a record. He's not getting reversed on any of this. You know, 
I think their only chance on appeal, and presumably the reason that one of Donald Trump's PACs paid his lawyer Chris Keyes $3 million on a retainer, was to angle for an appeal. And that's now out the window. And here's why. They could have arguably, and they certainly will, appeal the judge's decision to grant judgment on the fraud claims in advance of trial. That's a pretty routine summary judgment in a civil case where one of the parties has failed to put in sufficient evidence to create an issue of fact for the jury or the trier of fact to decide. Here, the judge prior to trial says, there's just no dispute. The defendants haven't offered sufficient evidence that they didn't engage in fraud. I'm going to rule for the attorney general. That's the kind of ruling that you can you know, go after on appeal. And yet yesterday, Donald Trump repeatedly caves into the attorney general's case. I think the most startling example is he's looking at documents and acknowledging his signature is on stuff that went to the bank. And there's a line on the form that says, you know, this this information is provided in an effort to induce a loan. I'm not quoting it exactly, but it's word to that effect using the verb inducement. And it's just really shocking that Trump was so unschooled, so unprepared for testimony that he, in essence, gave the appeal away yesterday. Can we take a step back for a moment and talk about what we think the spectacle yesterday says about the rule of law in our court system? So I'm of two minds about this, and I'm curious to know what you think. On the one hand, it was a joke. It was a spectacle, as I've said. It was a mockery. And you could say, well, it sort of degrades people's perceptions about the rule of law and the court system. On the other hand, here you had a former president of the United States who had to submit to questions, who was, you know, controlled to some degree by a judge. He had to be under oath. He didn't skip the trial. He's someone who was under a gag order. He's been fined once. He's been fined a second time. And he's submitted himself to this proceeding. And You know, on that ground, you can say, well, the system kind of works because someone like this, who was a former sitting president of the United States and maybe will be again in the future, he had to submit to legal process. So is this something to celebrate or something to scowl at? Yeah, I mean, I think you ask the right question like you always do. It's on the one hand, this sort of tragic moment that the country has come to this. But I'm more inclined towards the view that this really shows that the rule of law will ultimately come for Trump. I mean, he was a buffoon yesterday, not to mince words, but any thinking person, whether they support him or not, who saw that performance— understands what was going on. That was a desperate man in denial, lying on the witness stand, confused, not very bright, certainly not, you know, some sort of a billionaire businessman. He at one point, you know, acknowledged that that this business was what he built his brand on and, and he built his brand on the business to the extent that his presidency was about his brand as a, as a businessman. That's a sorry statement about our politics. But let me tell you what I liked yesterday. You know, typically when you have a witness on the witness stand in front of a jury, they have to answer questions. And if their answers are non-responsive, the person who's questioning them can move to strike, can ask the judge to instruct the jury not to consider answers that are non-responsive. And there can be other sanctions with a witness who continues to do that and talks about information that's not admissible in the trial. This situation was different because we have a judge deciding the case, not a jury. And of course, we assume that in that setting that a judge can simply set aside the extraneous matter. So there's no need to go through 
the objections and, and the process of excluding information. But it was very clear to everyone in the room that Donald Trump is not someone who can be trusted on the witness stand. In his criminal trials, if he insists upon testifying, he will convict himself. And yesterday, even though it's a civil case, not a criminal case, he convicted himself too. The rule of law won yesterday. Well, he's, he's not going to testify at his criminal trials, is he? You know, I'm a real outlier here. I hear everybody saying that. He can't testify. His lawyers, you know, won't let him testify. Donald Trump is clearly the smartest man in the room, if you ask him. He may believe that he can create reasonable doubt in the mind of one juror if he testifies, but I think more than that, he won't be able to resist the opportunity to take the witness stand and to, you know, be center stage and and have all eyes on him. I think he may want to try at a criminal trial, and who knows if his lawyers can talk him out of it. Yeah, you never know. I still think it's quite unlikely. I mean, it'd be stupid. The other dynamic that we've mentioned a couple of times from yesterday is there's no jury, right? And you have a very frustrated judge who's already made findings about the credibility of Donald Trump, including, by the way, a few days ago when Trump took the stand. This, by the way, his testimony was the second time he took the stand. The first time was over a dispute over what he said to reporters. Um, And it sounded like to the judge that he was disparaging judicial staff once again. So he's saying all these crazy things. He's being belligerent and bombastic and all sorts of other things as well. The judge can kind of take it because the judge is a big boy and the judge will rule as the judge will rule. If there had been a jury there and assume, you know, general makeup of a jury in New York and Donald Trump engaged in these antics and didn't answer questions and got into fights with the judge, aren't you pretty certain that that would turn the jury off? And his spectacle is less harmful with a judge than it would be with a jury? Or do I have that backwards? No, that's absolutely right. The judge is going to roll his eyes, but he's ultimately going to set aside all of the antics and decide the case just on the evidence in front of him. Of course, he's entitled to draw negative inferences when Trump refuses to answer questions. You know, when he's asked repeatedly about were you responsible or did you know about this? And instead, he talks about how great his brand is. The judge can draw the inference that he's not answering because the answer would be harmful. But in the hands of a jury, that sort of behavior is just a death knell for a witness. Juries are smart, and juries, when they go back into the room and deliberate, you know, and we hear this in my district, we can talk with juries after they return a verdict in the Eastern District of Virginia, where I used to practice the same deal. Juries are smart. Juries are canny. They understand what's going on with a witness like Donald Trump. You know, there are these exchanges between Trump and the judge, and we've talked about them, and there's some more to talk about, but there are also these odd exchanges between the judge and Trump's lawyers. You know, professional, so far as I know, at the moment at least, admitted in good standing to practice law in one or more jurisdictions, which is not the fate of some other lawyers for Donald Trump, as we've talked about. And, you know, for Trump, being the bombastic, you know, previous and future candidate that he is, that's one thing. Some of the stuff these lawyers said kind of struck me, including at one point, Alina Haba says, I was told to sit down today. I was yelled at and I've had a judge who is unhinged slamming a table. Let me be very clear. I don't tolerate that in my life. I'm not going to tolerate it here. Somebody responded on Twitter, no, I think actually you do have to tolerate it. (laughs) I think actually that's totally incorrect. 
He's the judge. He has the robe. He has the gavel. He has inherent authority. He has the power of contempt. You do have to take it. It was astonishing to me to hear someone talk that way about a judge who's actually a member of the profession and an officer of the court. So I have a question for you about this, though. Rule 8.3 of the New York Rules of Professional Conduct, I actually looked it up. I was sort of in a nerdy mood last night. It makes it a violation for a lawyer to criticize a judge publicly, for instance, referring to a judge as unhinged. So how does Alina Hubba not get a bar referral out of what she did yesterday? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it applies also, the general version of your question applies to Trump as well. And you know, we talked about how an, an appeals court will deal with this case. And Trump keeps saying he's being treated unfairly and the, the, the lawyers say they're being treated unfairly. This judge is tolerating so much horseshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than I have ever seen in my entire life. Sure, there have been two fines for gag order violations. But like, I'm trying to think of the judges in the Southern District with ordinary garden variety, everyday defendants wouldn't take one fiftieth of this nonsense. I mean, I'm just trying to think of Judge Kaplan, Judge Rakoff, Judge Cote. These people would have learned a lesson a long time ago. This judge is being barraged with calls, emails, letters in his chambers, threatening him and his staff. I'd be stunned if he hasn't received death threats at this point in time. And instead of being outraged and upset and angry, he goes into the courtroom and tells Trump, you can criticize me all you want, Mr. Trump. This judge is doing everything that he can to protect the record in this case. I think it's important to to say, you know, that while he is tolerating a lot of, as you so delicately say, horseshit, he is doing it in, in service of the rule of law and the good of this case. There was another exchange, I think, between the judge and, and one of the other lawyers, not Alina Haba, Mr. Keese, I think it's pronounced, where the judge said, I beseech you, can you control your clients? <laughs> and I don't know if it was in response to that beseeching or some other exchange, but Trump's lawyer basically says, he's answering brilliantly, he's a wonderful witness, and referred to him as the, as the former and future president. <laughs> um, you know, s- s- similar weird behavior playing to an audience of one. Their, I mean, everyone plays to their clients somewhat. In court, you have to do that. It's part of the job. It's the nature of the profession. But I've never seen it to that degree. And don't, at some point, these lawyers have to worry about their own reputations, particularly when there has been a parade of former lawyers for Donald Trump who have been sued, charged, and on the verge of disbarment. You know, I guess this is proof that you don't have to be wise to get into law school. Chris Keyes is the former Florida Solicitor General, the leading appellate lawyer for the state. But I think he's a true believer in the Trump cause. I think this is more than just showboating for his client. Again, it will be astonishing to me if these lawyers don't face at least someone with the courage to ask that their state bar consider their conduct. But your point, I think, is a more subtle one. And it's what happens to their reputation as lawyers after representing this client in this way. I think it's laudable frankly, for lawyers to represent someone who maybe has done things wrong. That's what makes our legal system work, both civil and criminal. It's the way that they're doing it that becomes reprehensible. I mean, it's Rudy Giuliani at Four Seasons Landscape. By the way, happy anniversary of the Four Seasons Landscaping press conference. Today is, in fact, the anniversary of of that sacred event to everybody who celebrates. But I mean, it's this, this tragicomic form of lawyering that both diminishes the bar and diminishes these folks personally. 
Here's another exchange between the judge and attorney Keese. At one point, Keese says to the court, quote, the court needs to hear what he has to say about these statements, referring to Donald Trump. He goes on to say, quote, he's describing to you about why there was no intent to mislead anyone with his answers. That's what he's doing. And the judge takes umbrage at this assertion that the court needs to hear what he has to say. The judge says, no, I'm not here to hear what he has to say. I'm here to hear him answer questions. And Donald Trump has apparently already taken that quote out of context to characterize the judge as being unfair by saying the judge said, I'm not here to hear what he has to say. It's a subtle difference, but a critically important material difference between what the lawyer is saying, what the judge is saying. And the difference is, you know, and the point of the judge, maybe he could have put it a little bit better and not allowed himself to be misquoted out of context, is I'm not here to allow a witness in a case to talk about irrelevancies and things that are not directly related to the case to get up on a soapbox and pretend this is a political rally when he's under oath and in the wooden witness box in state court. I'm here to hear him answer questions in ways that are appropriate, proper, and relevant to the case, right? There's a huge difference there. And and the lawyers seem to be not understanding that distinction, that it's not a bully pulpit for a witness. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that you make an incredibly good point here. The judge is correct. The judge doesn't have to listen to anything Donald Trump wants to say. Trump is on the witness stand on direct examination by the attorney general. He is supposed to answer the questions that he's being asked. I guess if they want to give him a bully pulpit, then his lawyers, they can call him as part of their case in chief. They can put him on the witness stand. They can ask some of those questions. But even there, you know, Witnesses don't get to just give narrative paragraphs. They have to answer the questions that they're being asked. And that's what Trump, I think, willfully misunderstands about this entire situation. His lawyers, there's no excuse for them failing to understand that. I wonder, just to go back to an earlier point, big picture point about why Trump is acting this way and how it's going for him, given the assumption that they've sort of already decided that they've lost the case. CNN, I think, had some reporting talking about the contentious morning between Trump and the judge in the civil fraud trial. And they cite to a source close to the former president's team as being happy with the way he's handled his testimony, quote, he's turning this into the Trump show. That's how he's winning, end quote. Mm. So are we all talking past each other, the Trump team and the commentators? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a really interesting question. The question of what Trump considers a win. And maybe in his warped mind, he somehow rationalizes the loss of his business because he thinks he's scoring points on the judge and the judge's law clerk and Joe Biden with the way he's conducting himself. Boy, that's a sad commentary. I want to come back to something else, Joyce, you said, because I've heard a lot of commentators making the point that, you know, maybe this is a real strategy on the part of Donald Trump, and everyone uses the same verb, goad, G-O-A-D. Is he trying to goad the judge into making some mistake or overreacting? I think you and I are both skeptical of that because I don't think there's a strategy. I think it's the Trump show. I think that that source from CNN says it all. And that's not about trying to draw the judge into some mistake, but just Trump being Trump. What do you, what do you make of the goading strategic argument? 
You know, I think that's right. I think that that's an effort by people to find some explanation for the former president's behavior. And I think the explanation is that there is none. This isn't some sort of strategic, principled push by by Donald Trump. This is just Trump letting the Trump show be unscripted reality TV. Should we talk about some of the defenses Trump has put forward in his testimony because that gets to the substance of this? So, so one that he spends a lot of time on, right, is there were these disclaimers when financial valuations and statements were submitted to these lenders. He tries to make the point, there are disclaimers, there are disclaimers, there are disclaimers, which, which he takes to mean, I think, over broadly, that if you have any kind of modest disclaimer whatsoever, you can lie through your teeth in massive, massive ways, and you can't get in trouble for it, and you can't get sued for it or anything else. That's not quite how disclaimers work, correct? I think, you know, it's so important, instead of taking what Trump says at face value, to just stop for a minute and to think about how this entire financial system works so that when somebody is seeking a loan, they file documentation to the bank, they file truthful documentation. The bank might do some work on its own, but they're looking at that documentation. They are supposed to be able to rely on it. That's one of the underlying assumptions that this system works on. And Trump says, no, not true. We just submit a bunch of lies. We say maybe (laughs) this isn't so reliable. And it's all up to the bank to do what the bank wants to do. And and that's just bunk. There was the other, other, you know, it's so interesting how he handled various aspects of this, right? With respect to his apartment at Trump Tower (laughs) that we've talked about many times, which is about 11,000, 10 or 11,000 square feet. And I think he represented that it was 30,000 square feet. Rather than say it was an error, somebody just, you know, transposed numbers or whatever, which also wouldn't be plausible, but still better than what I think he said. He's like, well, you know, I think maybe we accounted for other spaces like the elevator shaft (laughs) that may have caused the discrepancy. My favorite one is the roof. The roof. If you include the roof footage, it's close, right? We made a mistake, but include the roof. But you can't triple the you can't triple the square footage with the roof. You need two roofs, <laughs> right? You would have to have a roof which doubles the size, and then you would have to have another roof. I mean, I think the reality is that they lied, right? Was it Forbes magazine that first caught the lie, forced him to to recant? I mean, this is just a, one lie after another, and now compounded by really you know, playing pretty loose and fast with the truth under oath in a courtroom. Right. And then he makes the same argument that that his lawyers made and was rejected. In fact, at one point, the judge says, back to the the testifying witness, Donald Trump, you know, read my order, read my decision, and suggest that he had not read it, right? Because <laughs> he, he addresses and dispenses with, the, with these arguments there. And on the banks, whether the banks did or did not make money, that's relevant if you're talking about a theory of restitution, right? What do the banks lose? And is the penalty going to be based on what the restitution value is to make the banks whole? That's not the theory we're proceeding under here. We're proceeding under a a false enrichment kind of theory that he got a windfall and ill-gotten gains from misrepresenting his the values of his properties. And that that doesn't rely on what the banks may or may not have lost. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a remarkable piece of expert testimony that Letitia James is able to get on the witness stand. She has an expert who estimates that the Trump Organization saved $168 million in ill-gotten gains through all of these shenanigans. And I don't hear Trump's folks responding to that. So there's, there's some other things 
that he says, here's the thing that he keeps focusing on. And I don't, I don't think this is actually necessarily a gambit. I think in his head, and I wonder if this makes a difference at all, Donald Trump is so full of himself and so full of his properties and his buildings and his golf courses and his resorts and once upon a time his casinos that he's coined this phrase that he puts out to the court like it's a term of art and recognized in accounting circles. And that is brand value. Do you understand what he's talking about when he says brand value? Like you, you take a thing like an apartment and you can add millions of dollars to its stated value for purposes of getting a loan or a credit facility by saying, because it's a Trump thing, it's worth a lot more. These are not paintings, right? Yeah. And I mean, this is how I think about it, right? I'm a really good cook. I'm extremely fond of my own cooking. So in my house, there's chicken soup, and then there's chicken soup that mom has made. And if that's chicken soup with my brand on it, it, it's worth more, right? My kids, my husband, me, we're going to all prefer to eat Joyce's chicken soup. Trump is sort of trying to translate that. I think your example of a painting is a good one, right? A Monet is worth a lot more than a Preet Bharara is worth. Um, at least I think so. And, and Trump tries to translate that into absolute values based on total speculation. It's like me saying my chicken soup is worth 50 bucks a cup, but, you know, the Campbell's chicken soup we get out of the can is only 50 cents a cup or, or, or whatever. It is a nonsense sort of an argument, and he has built it up over years so that no one questions it. There's certainly brand value. I think we can all recognize that as a concept. But, but that's not what Trump is doing. What Trump is doing is just made up fantasy. What's also interesting is he seems to have done less of what his sons did, Eric and Donald Trump Jr., when they testified last week. By the way, we've totally, you know, overlooked their testimony. But their testimony was, dare I say it, more traditional more normal. And they, you know, tried to substantively make the point, doesn't succeed at the end of the day for various reasons. And the judge didn't buy and is not going to buy it. But look, we're busy people. We get a million emails. We rely on our accountants. We pay our accountants a lot of money. And they handle these things. They handle the documents. They convey the documents, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't answer the question why Donald Trump's signatures on these things and, and doesn't address the issue that Donald Trump himself brought into the room when he said that he was involved in some of these valuations. But it's at least a plausible, rational kind of way of defending the case. Trump didn't do much of that. Why, why wouldn't he? You know, it's crazy. I mean, maybe Donald Trump should have sat in the courtroom to listen to his sons testify. If he didn't want to be a good dad and support them, maybe he should have done it out of a sense of self-preservation because he really shoots up this argument that they're making, you know, Eric Trump, I just pour the concrete, right? We relied on the accountants. Donald Trump Jr. testifies to that extensively. I didn't look at the numbers. I just asked our guys, is this correct? And when they said yes, I signed. And Trump comes in and it's just 180 degrees, you know, talks about his role and how much he knew. And it's just crazy talk. There's this exchange about Mar-a-Lago because Trump has been so adamantly opposed to the judge repeating the valuation that the Palm Beach appraisers put on that property. And of course, it's clear that Trump's very whimsical inflated value that he puts on Mar-a-Lago is based on the use of that property as a residential property. And it's not. It's a club. And it has to be a club because Trump signed deed restrictions with Palm Beach that limit his use of the property 
as a club. So he's asked about this on the witness stand, and he seizes on some language that says he intends to use it as a club. And he says, well, that just says intends. It doesn't say it's what I'm going to do. What's the difference? Unfortunately for Trump, the following page is the binding agreement. And I think just over and over, he's exposed as someone who's not detail-oriented, doesn't understand what's going on, will make stuff up that benefits him, and will lie out of whole cloth if he thinks he can get away with it. Here's another point that I think is important when we talk about the trial and what's persuasive and what's not. I made a related point when I talked about Michael Cohen's testimony on Stay Tuned last week, and that is, you know, the finder of fact, whether it's a judge as it is in this case, or a jury as it is in many cases, they're not making the ultimate decision about their verdict or about the extent of the penalty necessarily based on one day of testimony or one witness's testimony or one document or even a few documents, right? It's it's the totality of the evidence, the totality of the presentation by the attorney general's office in this matter. So when we say, you know, how important is Donald Trump's testimony? Yeah, it's relatively important. How important is Michael Cohn's testimony? You know, probably less so, but, you know, relatively important. But in a case like this, where you have lots of documents, you have lots of witnesses, you have expert testimony, um, and you have many witnesses testifying, you don't have to rely on one particular witness to make or break the case, right? You know, that's that's right. I mean, it is the totality of that evidence. And it's it's interesting to me in that regard that something that Trump could have done on the witness stand, I think it's part of what his adult children tried to do, is to minimize the damage award, to say, well, you know, Your Honor, you've already found that fraud existed, but it's not the most culpable kind of fraud. We were more negligent than intentional. That's something that that his lawyers could have then used to argue that the attorney general's request for damages, the $250 million, was overinflated. But Trump doesn't do anything, really, but throw fuel on those flames. And as you say, the judge considers all of the evidence when he decides the case and what he's really deciding here is damages. So sure, if there are problems with Michael Cohen's testimony, he's not the most central witness here. But when Donald Trump does nothing to help himself on the damages issue, that is the sort of testimony that will loom large in the context of all of the evidence that the judge has heard about the misconduct involved here. You put out an interesting tweet yesterday, Joyce, because the way this works is the government lawyers, the AG's office lawyers, ask questions of Donald Trump. And then Trump's lawyers, who are not potted plants, they're very vocal and very supportive of their client and fight on behalf of their client with the judge, as we've described in several episodes over the last number of days. When it came to be their opportunity to set the record straight or clean up some confusion on the part of their client who testified in this bizarre way, as we've described, what did they do? Nothing, right? The witness is excused, Your Honor. So what's up with that? I heard a lot of people afterwards saying, well, he's he's on their witness list. They're going to call him in their case in chief. So there was no need. I don't really buy that. I think after his performance on, on the witness stand, they couldn't get him off the witness stand quickly enough. I mean, it's stunning, right? You're supposed to be able to cross-examine your client when they're called as a hostile witness by the other side. That's what happened here. Donald Trump was the attorney general's witness. They could have cross-examined to try to clean up some of the problems he created on direct. They were afraid to do that. They just ran away. Yeah, I mean, I wonder also if it's, you know, a bit of bravado. We were talking about the hypothetical 
not in the civil context, but in the, in the context where the defense is putting on a case or the prosecutor is putting on a witness. And then when the opportunity for cross-examination comes up to say, no questions, your honor, in a very um, sort of casual way to suggest to the jury that nothing that person said was harmful to my side. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that hypothetically. I don't know anybody who ever did, whoever, I guess there are sometimes you do that. And only in front of a jury, right? It's theatrics, only in front of a jury. Well, you know, sometimes when there's a victim of a crime, right? Mm -hmm. And the question is, did the defendant do it? Do you have the right person? And the defense is, you have the wrong person, but they're not denying that the crimes were committed. People were shot or sexually abused or whatever the case may be. And the prosecutor puts on somebody who's a victim. You still probably, in almost every circumstance, want to gently cross-examine that person to establish, you know, gaps in the identification. But there are circumstances in which you just decide not to cross somebody who's sympathetic and doesn't harm your case that much because it's testimony about something that's ancillary to what your principal defense is. Yeah. But almost always, you take the opportunity to ask some questions. I mean, this is really interesting because they didn't cross-examine Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump either. But their testimony wasn't particularly damaging. Trump caused some damage. I think that's the, the sort of testimony that you do want to clean up. And the fact that they didn't tells me that they didn't think that they could rely on him to clean it up. It was like, God knows what he'll say if, if we ask him cleanup questions. Let's just get him out of there. So we mentioned the sons. We mentioned the father. Now comes time for the daughter, Ivanka Trump. I have so many questions about this, right? Ivanka Trump testifies on Wednesday. That's tomorrow. We're taping Tuesday morning. Ivanka Trump was originally a defendant in this case. She was dismissed. Ivanka Trump's great good fortune, right, is that she steps down to go to the White House. And so an appellate court says she's out of the statute of limitations. We're dismissing her as a defendant. Never been deposed. The attorney general, I think, presumably doesn't know what Ivanka Trump is going to say. Hasn't deposed her. She's not a party to the case. And my question is, would you put a witness on the stand at trial if you didn't know what they were going to say? You may, if it's a very, very important witness. And for various reasons, it was not possible to get a preview or you didn't have documents and you trust your ability to get the truth out of this person with a judge who controls the courtroom. In this circumstance, as we already just said, right, there's plenty of evidence in favor of the government's case, right? You have the sons, you had Donald Trump himself testify, you have the documents, you have the expert testimony, you have Michael Cohen. It's not clear to me what she adds that would put you over the top. There has to be something very important that they expect to elicit from Ivanka Trump. Otherwise, it's just too risky to put her on the witness stand and let her roam. And so I wonder if there's not something specific here that they believe they can get her to testify about. And if, if she won't be truthful, perhaps they have documentary evidence to confront her with. But I'm very curious to see what will happen when she's on the stand tomorrow. Yeah, it could be. It could be. You have to assume that they have a good strategy here, but I guess we'll, we'll be talking about it next week, I'm sure. So before we go, we should just mention something that we've already talked about a little bit. And that is with respect to the DC January 6th related trial that's pending, Trump's team has moved to dismiss the DC charges on, among other things, constitutional grounds. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, we talked about this last week. There's a series of four different motions ranging from presidential immunity to First Amendment to the government failed to plead properly in the indictment and also alleging that there's selective and vindictive prosecution here. But really, when you look at all those motions together, what Trump is doing is asking for special treatment. He's saying, me personally, as a former president, I shouldn't be prosecuted like anybody else should be. And what interests me so much about Jack Smith's responses to the motions is this is the strongest statement I've seen from the government that says, Mr. Trump, you're just like any other defendant and we're going to treat you. No exceptional delays, no motions to continue your time to file dispositive motions because it's not convenient for you to file on the schedule anyone else should have to file on. We don't have to include more information in your indictment than we would for other people. You're just defendant Trump at this point. Except, Joyce, that's true so far as it goes. Trump says he's special in these ways that you've described. Jack Smith says you're just an ordinary defendant. But Jack Smith also says, in a way, Trump is special, right? Jack Smith says, quote, The defendant, this defendant, Donald Trump, the defendant stands alone in American history for his alleged crimes, end quote. How do you square that statement about him standing alone in the history of American criminal law and he's just like everybody else? Yeah, I mean, I think I actually can reconcile those because Jack Smith says you're being treated like any defendant. He makes the statement that you read that I think is is particularly compelling. I mean, this is a prosaic sort of response to some very intricate legal motions. And what he's responding to is Trump's very whiny argument. Nobody else gets indicted for these crimes. Nobody else has ever been indicted for talking about, you know, fraud in a federal election. Jack Smith's rejoinder is unflinching. He says, that's because nobody else has ever done what you did. To the extent that you're unique, Donald Trump, it's because of the crimes that you committed. When it comes to being a defendant, you are the same as anyone else who's charged with federal crimes. So we will continue to watch what happens in the New York trial, what happens to these motions to dismiss, what happens, you know, in in the world generally. We'd love to hear from you. As always, send your questions, comments, concerns to letters at cafe.com. We'll look forward to answering them. Cafe Insider is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is Jake Kaplan. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is David Tadashore, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Noah Azulai, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.